because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, as we continue our series, I think we have three more sermons here in the letter to 2 Peter. As you're turning there, let me greet you by saying, Happy Lord's Day. Day. It's the Lord's Day. Jesus Christ died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday, so we celebrate the Lord's resurrection this Sunday. Saints around the world gather to celebrate the hope we have in Christ. Some of you come a little broken and burdened. Some of you come with joy and gladness this Sunday. Either way, we have hope because Christ has risen from the dead. And if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here this morning, and we hope that you would have this gospel peace and hope that can only come through Jesus Christ dying and rising for you. So we pray that you trust in him today and at least ask us questions along the way. Let's um, read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. It's on page, if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, you can turn to the black hardcover Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you go to page 1080 in the black hardcover Bible, page 1080, you'll find um, 2 Peter chapter 2. When I say chapter 2, the 2 is the big number, and we're going to read verses 10 through 22. Those are the verse numbers. Those are, are the smaller numbers you can find there in your Bible. Hear then the word of the living God. Bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand, and in their destruction, they too will be destroyed." They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse... They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Basur, who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them, for by uttering boastful, empty words they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to not for them not to have known the way of righteousness, then, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed sow or so returns to wallowing in the mud. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, We pray that your word would dwell richly among us. We thank you for speaking to us. We pray now, believing in your son's death and resurrection for us, believing in your Holy Spirit who who guides us in all truth and peace, as he is the fount of joy and holiness, we pray that he would produce joy and holiness in us now, that you would use this passage to soften our hearts, to strengthen our resolve, and to make us faithful to obey and trust you in your ways. So guide us and guard us, we pray. We pray for our friends here who are not Christian. We're so thankful that they're here. We pray that they would feel our love, that they would feel your love, and that they would even come now to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We all have fears, and that's an easy way to start any sermon, that we all have fears, and some of these fears cripple us, I wonder what fears cripple you or really cause like a deep heart fear. You know there's the surface fears and there's deeper heart fears. I'll share one that maybe some of you share. 
Um, they say that almost 40% of men and women will get cancer in their lifetime, and our church has been touched by cancer either directly, some of you members, or those we know and love. All of our lives have been touched by it in some way. And I confess that though it says 40%, I often feel like for me it's like 75%. It's just something I feel personally that, it, that, that this is going to happen. Um, and I'm not a prophet. I'm not prophesying it here. I'm just saying that that's one of my fears, and you might have that fear or other fears like that. Um, it strikes fear in my life at times. But you know, as Christians, we have resources to deal with death, don't we? I have resources to deal with sickness. It doesn't make it easy, but we have resources in Christ for those things. But there's a greater fear for me and for those I love than cancer or death, as, as dreadful and as horrific as those things are. And that's the fear of apostasy. Have you heard that word before? Apostasy? It's the falling away of those who once professed faith or still profess faith in Jesus Christ but they fall away from Jesus. They turn away from Jesus. They end up rejecting the true Jesus. Now that's a greater fear for me as a Christian than cancer or death because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So yes, it's fearful to die at 40 years old and leave a wife and children. That's possible, that might be God's will. That's fearful. But dying is still gain. It's still a win in the end for me. And for all those who are in Christ, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, right? We believe that. So it's gain. But for the apostate, there's no hope outside of Christ, and therefore they are by definition hopeless. If you reject Jesus, if you fall away from Jesus, if one of your loved ones, if one of our loved ones falls away from Jesus, there is no hope. There is no gain. For the Christian, death has lost its sting. The grave has no victory over Christians. Zero victory. Death has lost. The grave has lost. Christ has conquered. But if we're not truly in Christ Jesus, then death will sting. The grave will raise its victorious banner over the apostate. Now I fear this for me and for the other 95 members of Bethany Baptist Church, whom I love and serve here. I'm fearful for us. I want to make it to the end, and I know all 96 of us want to make it to the end, and we want that for each other, don't we? We pray for each other. You're praying through the members directory regularly, hopefully, and you're thinking about each other, and you've considered how to stir each other up to love and good works, and here you are on Sunday. We see people that we haven't seen for a few weeks, and I'm saying, God, you're answering my prayers. Some people are here happy to encourage each other. Praise God for that. We want to help each other endure. And if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in Jesus or you don't believe in heaven or, and hell, or you don't believe that those apart from Jesus will end up in hell, you still want the greatest and highest good for those you love, don't you? All people want that for those they love. We all have this desire, and God wants to keep us on the right track. The issue is, for this church and for every church, members will fall away. Apostasy is inevitable, not for everyone, but for some in every church. Churches will be deceived, Christians will be deceived, and some will fall away. The question is not if, it's when. And it's not whether, it's who. 1 John 2.19 sobers us. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. People do leave churches. People do fall away. People who once professed faith in Christ. I made a list last night of friends I have known or people I've known of who have fallen away from Christ. And then I wrote next to it the reason why they fell away. It's really sad. Let me just tell you some of the reasons why people have fallen away. Some have left for universalism because they didn't want to say that Christ was the only way to God. They couldn't say that a, that a Muslim, particularly in this conversation, that a Muslim would go to hell apart from Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Some have a distorted view of social justice. Some have been given over to sexually immoral pleasures with a boyfriend or a married woman 
or a pastor who left his wife and kids to pursue a relationship with another man. Or a friend of mine personally who gave up Jesus for his same-sex sexual desire and lifestyle. Or another, even in this church, who had a desire to go deeper in the Hebrew scriptures and ended up denying that Jesus is God. Or another professor from the Master's University, former professor, who was so fascinated with Jesus' humanity, similarly, that he denied Jesus is God. Or another friend who was bereaved by his mom's death and left the faith. Another who was bereaved by a wife and left the faith. Another who went to school and was convinced of theological liberalism and that there must be errors in the Bible and eventually left the faith. Another who was captivated by philosophy. And we can go on and on and on and on with different reasons people fall away from Jesus. And so we're fearful for ourselves. We're fearful for our fellow members, for our children, our loved ones. What can we do? Well, we don't merely have to cross our fingers and just hope we make it. That's not what we, we, God has given us more than that. Actually, Peter has given us 2 Peter chapter 2, actually the whole book of 2 Peter, so that we can get direct help in making it to the end. Indeed, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in, in chapter 1 verse 10, you have the main call of the whole book, the main goal of the whole book, that you would make every effort to confirm your calling and election because there are some in the church who are not, who have not, they say they're called of, of Christ, they say they're chosen by God. They say that they're believers, but they're not. And so Peter's burden in this book is to, for you, for the hearers, to confirm it, to prove it, to confirm that you're called by Christ, to confirm that you've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, to prove that you're a Christian, to confirm your calling. That's the burden of the book. And here, here's the main goal of this passage and the sermon. Peter's main goal here is beware of false teachers and learners, so that you confirm your calling and election. That's, that's the burden here of this passage. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22, Peter's telling you, telling Bethany Baptist Church and the hearers this morning, you need to beware, be aware of false teachers and false learners of Christ, so that you confirm your calling. One of the ways you confirm your calling, one of the ways you prove that you're truly a Christian is by being aware of false teachers is by being aware of false learners. If you have no category for this, you are weaker in confirming your calling. So you need to have a category for this, which is why we spent last week and this week talking about being aware of false teachers. Okay, so because God's word does not return empty, right? It always accomplishes God's purposes. God has a purpose for you in hearing this word today. So we're gonna take this passage and we're gonna unpack it in two, two statements. Beware of the arrogant, that's verses 10 through 14, and then beware of the cursed, verses 14 to 22. You see in verse 10, it says in the middle, verse 10, bold, arrogant people. So beware of arrogance and beware of the arrogant. And then in verse 14, at the very end of verse 14, he says, children under a curse, and he talks about how they're under a curse. So be aware of the cursed, okay? Those are our two points. If you get that, you'll beware of false teachers and learners so that you confirm your calling and election. So first, beware of the arrogant, verses 10 through 14. Look at verses 10, the second half of verse 10 through 14 with me. I want you to notice that there are three traits of the arrogant that you need to be aware of, okay? Notice first the words of the arrogant. Notice their words. Look at verses 10 through 12. Bold, arrogant people, they are not afraid to what? What's their action here? What do they do? They're not afraid to slander. That's to speak against, to speak ill and evil, to speak down to the glorious ones. So notice their words. They slander the glorious ones. Now, who are the glorious ones? The same phrase is used in Jude 8 and 9, so you could turn there later if you want. But there are three views of the glorious one, and to be honest, uh, I don't know what it is. I'm going to tell you what I lean towards, okay? But let me give you three options here. And I think we could get the main point either way of this section, but let me tell you the three options. So these false teachers and the false learners who follow them, they slander the glorious ones. Option one, this is John Piper, the word literally is they slander the glories, the glories. 
And so John Piper says, the, 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 the most popular view is that it refers to, to um, evil fallen angels. And so that's, that's the third view I'm going to give you. But the first view, John Piper says, it says they're the glorious ones, that they're the glorious. And if you look at chapter one and chapter three, it talks about the glory of Christ, the glory of his coming. And then in chapter three, they, they slander the glory of the second coming. So the glories are the work of Christ and the glories of the second coming. That's Piper's view. He says, it's too weird to call fallen angels the glorious ones. So because of that, it can't be fallen angels. It has to be, um, it has to be the glories of Christ. So, so here are the arrogant who slander the glory of the second coming. Okay, that's option one. Option two is uh, by another um, commentator um, named Green who says it's good angels. Because again, it's glorious ones. So to call them bad angels doesn't make sense. So these false teachers are slandering good angels. That's his view. And then, because glorious ones seems to be celestial beings, some angelic beings of some sort. And then the third view, which is the most common view, is they slander fallen angels. And, and the reason for that is not because we like to call fallen angels glorious ones, because in Jude 8 and 9, when it refers to glorious ones, it seems to refer to the glorious ones that Michael doesn't slander, even Satan. And then it talks about how Michael doesn't slander Satan. So if you're a Jew at eight and nine, the glorious ones there seem to be fallen angels. And so um, either way, the point here is that false teachers will slander either angelic beings or the second coming of Christ or glorious ones, and that shows their arrogance. And, and so the point here is be aware that these people slander and talk down about things that they don't know about, and they're arrogant in their slander. Now I'm gonna share my view. I think my view, my view is the third one. I don't like the fact that that fallen angels are called glorious ones. But in Jude 8 and 9, it just seems that they're fallen angels. Satan seems to be part of that group. And so because of that, I think it refers to fallen angels. And since I think that, you could, we could talk about it more later, but let me, let me explain the rest of the passage, verses 11 and 12, in light of that, okay? So look at verse 11. Verse 11, so these false teachers slander fallen angels. However, angels... Now, there's good angels who are greater in might and power than the fallen angels. They don't bring a slanderous charge against the fallen angels before the Lord. But these people, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, they slander what they don't understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. We'll talk about their destruction later. But notice this. They slander what they don't understand. So what are the false teachers doing? They're slandering fallen angels. How do they slander fallen angels? Here's my guess of how it's working out here. Remember, where are these false teachers and these false learners? Inside or outside the church? Inside the church. These are pastors and teachers inside the church. These are members, outspoken members inside the church. So how are they slandering fallen angels? They say things like, man, demons can't touch me. I am not threatened by demons at all. Demons have no control. They have no influence over me. I am untouchable to demons. Demons could never influence me in any way. They talk down about the power of demonic influence and oppression in, in churches. They think they're immune. And when you're not immune, but you think you're immune, guess what? You're a sitting duck. Because you think that they can't control you, well, guess what they're doing? Controlling you. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, that there are opponents of the men of God, that's, that's Timothy at least in, in his context, there are, there are opponents of Timothy who are captured by the, by the devil to do his will in the churches. And when these false teachers and false learners belittle demons and they don't feel the threat of demonic influence and deception in their own souls, they slander them. They, 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 they belittle them and they, um, they minimize their threat. And when they minimize their threat, they puff themselves up as if they're really spiritually strong. And that's arrogant. The healthy Christian is not consumed with demons all the time. But the healthy Christian does fear demons. And the healthy Christian does fear even demonic influence in his or her own life. What, is, what does uh, Ephesians 4, 25 and 26 say? Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give an opportunity to the, the devil. Sinful anger? Held on sinful anger in your life? Gives an opportunity to who? The devil. And who's Paul writing to in Ephesians? 
Christians. Christian, you can be taken over by a devil. Demons can oppress you and influence you. And bold, arrogant, false teachers and false learners, false disciples, act as if demons can't touch them. And in that arrogance, they, they show that they're false teachers and false learners. Okay? Angels, this is Jude 8 and 9. Angels don't even talk down to demons. They, they call on God. They won't even slander the demons and belittle them. And here we are, Christians in the church. Man, demons can't do, they got nothing on me. We do have verses like, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Praise God for that. Is God not greater than demons? He is. And is God not in us? He is, right? Praise God for that. But if that leads you to cockiness, as if you can't be tempted by sin and demons, you're a fool. You're a fool. That's arrogant. Okay, let's move on. So, so here they, they slander, they slander demons in their, in their arrogance. Notice their words. But not only notice their words, notice their delights in verses 13 and 14. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. We'll cover that later in their curse. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. Notice this. They take pleasure in showing off that they can get drunk in public. They, 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 the activity of drinking alcohol and enjoying themselves in loud and noisy and um, attention-getting ways, they do that in public. They do that in the daylight. These Christians. It might be th those who, you know, Peter can talk about in chapter 3 how they distort the teachings of Paul. It might be those who say, hey, we're justified by faith alone, not by works, right? Are you, are you justified before God by your works or by Christ's works? Christ's works. And not your works. You're justified by faith alone. So guess what? doesn't matter how much I sin. God, Christ has paid for my sins past, present, and future so I could do whatever I want because I'm a real mature Christian. I really believe the gospel. You don't believe the gospel. That's why you give in to these rules. But I don't give in to that. I know the Bible. I know the gospel. It's okay for me to indulge in sin, publicly or privately. So notice their delights. They delight in sin. Reading on in verse 13, um, not only do they, they consider a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight, they are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they have, um, in, in this carousing, um, some of you, I hope, especially the men here that you didn't watch the, um, the, the show last week as it was kind of touted all around social media, um, you know, there's women at, um, at a football game dancing um, very lustfully and sexually immorally to entice and invoke lustful um, thoughts and activity. And it was celebrated. Even Christians could defend it. You know, women power, give them power, and we're all for equality and women having power and not being oppressed, for sure, absolutely. But not in ways that are sinfully and sexually immoral. That's not good for anybody. And yet... They do this loud and with celebrations. In verse, um, continuing on in verse 13, I, I read already, they delight in their deceptions while they feast with you. So they feast with the church family and they delight in their deceptions. They delight in their, their teaching. One of, the, one of the marks of false teachers and those who are false learners is they like quirky doctrines. They like quirky things in the Bible and they like to delight in the fact that they know those things. And they like to kind of parade it before the church before other Christians, and they delight in that. And in that, they kind of show as if they have a greater spirituality, which is just foolishness, but they have that, and they delight in those deceptions while they eat with the church family. Brothers and sisters, you need to eat with each other. That's part of the Christian pattern of life, is having meals with each other. But these people, they delight in their deceptions while they feast with one another. Maybe it's even during the Lord's Supper, as 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the problems there during the Lord's Supper. Not only that, look at verse 14. In verse 14, they have eyes full of what? Eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They delight in adultery. They delight in sexual immorality. They delight in bodily pleasures that are forbidden by the Lord and not in the way that God has ordained and designed them to be. Forbidden pleasures. And so because their eyes are full of adultery, and with their eyes you look, what are they looking for? What are they looking for? Opportunities to what? 
Opportunities to sin. They look for opportunities to indulge. It's not enough that they have a sinful desire. They look for ways of exercising it. They look for ways of feeding it, of indulging in it. This is like Genesis 6-5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. These false teachers, these false disciples, these false learners of Christ, they look at every woman, especially the teachers, they look at every church leaders, they look at every woman as a potential sexual, apart, sexual partner to be used for their sinful pleasure. And those who follow them follow in lust. They're looking for sin. They're looking for ways of scratching that itch. What do you delight in? Here, they're delighting in deceptions. They're delighting in carousing. They're delighting in lust and adultery and sexual, sexually immoral pleasures. And they're looking for opportunities to fulfill it. Church member, Christian, non-Christian friend here, what do you delight in? Is it carousing? Is it drunkenness? Is it deceptions? while feasting with church family? Are your eyes full of adultery and forbidden pleasures? Are you continually looking for sin and following those who do? Plotting on how you can get away with it and not get caught? Find a way of confessing something but not the thing? Pornography is a is, I mean, today, I mean, Peter's writing this in the first century. Imagine smartphones, right? With internet, access, wherever you are, where, in the secret, with no one knowing. What do you delight in? Does confession feel completely dreadful and unhelpful to you? Does confession feel like a drudgery rather than a blessing? Now, confession is hard, and it's not fun. But when you confess and you feel God's grace and forgiveness, it's life-giving. It's a joy. And I know many of you members here have experienced the joy of confessing sin and finding grace on the other side of confession. But I also know there are many members here and guests who don't see confession as a joy and a gift. It's fearful for them. And if it's fearful for you, it's because you don't understand grace correctly. You still need to hide. You don't trust that God's love will be experienced on the other side of that confession. And I plead with you, if you're a Christian here, to experience the joy of finding forgiveness and restoration in confessing your sins without polishing it up, airbrushing it, and hiding the, the, the embarrassing parts. Notice their delights. But not only their delights, notice their influence. Look at verse 14 again. Um, they have eyes full of adultery. They seduce unstable people and have their hearts trained in greed. So notice that they, they influence people. They, they seduce people. So seducing someone is not forcing them against their will. There's mutual consent in seduction, but it's still seduction, right? It's tricking somebody. So, so these false teachers and false learners in the church, they're persuasive, they don't force people to do their will. They persuade them to do it. They convince them to do it. And notice who they convince. Who do they seduce? The what? What does he call them here? What kind of people? The what? Unstable people. It's the unstable people that are persuaded. It's those who are spiritually immature. It's the baby Christians that we prayed for this morning. Not just the baby Christians who are new Christians. You could have been a Christian for 10 years and still be a baby Christian. It's the unstable members of the church who are not quite repenting and trusting Christ regularly, who are not quite meditating on his word day and night, who are not quite connected relationally to members where they can feel the freedom of vulnerability and shared life together. They're still guarded. They still have people at an arm's length. And they have the Lord at an arm's length. They're unstable in their Christian lives. They're real Christians, but they're unstable. And so they are the ones who are more susceptible to the seduction of these false teachers. Application for Christians, pursue spiritual stability in your fellowship with Christ and his people. Stop being a spiritual baby. Break your habits, your baby habits. 
of basically just getting baby, baby milk, spiritual baby milk. Grow up, Christian brother and sister. You don't have to stay immature. But PJ, I've been a spiritually immature Christian for 10 years. Great. You don't have to stay there. Today can be the day of change. You can actually build different habits. You can start coming to Sunday night gatherings. You can start sharing prayer requests with other members of the church. You can start reading your Bible regularly and sharing what you learn. You can start conversations with non-Christians and ask them to consider Christ. You don't have to be doomed to your past. You can grow. And actually, the message of 2 Peter is you must grow or else you'll be seduced. So who influences you? And what are they influencing you toward? Here, these people are driven by greed. Are you influenced towards greed and self-centeredness? Or are you influenced towards a passion for Christ-centeredness and others' helpfulness? Do the people who influence you cause you to love neighbors more and cause you to love church members more? Or do the people who influence you pull you away from gospelizing neighbors? Do the people who influence you pull you away from sharing life with your church family? Who influences you? False teachers, false learners influence you with their idolatrous greed, not their God-centered love for Christ, his church, and the lost. Who's influencing you, and what are they influencing you towards? All right, so to apply this point before we go to the second point, if you're discouraged I want you to notice the progression towards falling away in apostasy. If you're living fruitfully, you're in Christ, your danger is failing to continue. This is a toolbox from Andy Davis, Pastor Andy Davis of First Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. He, he, he talks about these different categories of Christians. Some of you are lacking information biblically, and so your spiritual danger is doctrinal ignorance. You need to learn the Bible more. But some of you are more than lacking information. You need to get moving. And your spiritual danger is laziness and neglect. You know what to do. You just don't do it. You need to get moving. Your, danger is, um, spiritual, your spiritual danger is laziness and neglect. And so I want to exhort you to move. For some of you, it's suffering trial. You guys have tremendous pressure on your lives. And it's not your fault. It's the fault of your circumstances. You're suffering trial. Your spiritual danger is discouragement. You need to find comfort and consolation in Christ and his people. For some of you, you're starting to go astray. And so the danger for you is you're developing a new sin pattern. You need to be warned to turn around. You need to be corrected. You need to share what's going on in your life and what's drawing you away. For some of you, even worse, you're further down. You're not just starting to go astray. You're determined to wander. You've already made a decision. I'm in this sin, and I'm going to keep going in this sin. And your danger is habitual sin. And you need to be rebuked. You need to stop sinning. You need to repent right now and turn around. And for others of you, you are in stubborn unrepentance. You're not only determined to sin, you're defending your sin. You're stubborn in it. You refuse to repent. And your danger is apostasy. Your danger is actually falling away from Jesus. And the proper response for us is church discipline. That's what we need to do as a church. And you need to submit yourself to church discipline. So where are you on that spectrum? Are you lacking information? Are you needing to get moving? Are you suffering trial? Are you starting to go astray? Are you determined to wander? Or are you stubbornly unrepentant? Brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful. This is not a game we're playing at church. Christian, hold on not only to our confession of faith, but our church covenant, how we agree to live together. It's not enough to know the right doctrine. We need to live together as a church family. Church family, BBC, don't let our church covenant become an empty ritual. Don't let our church covenant become an empty ritual. Instead, make it meaningful. How often do we recite the church covenant in this church? Anyone want to say it out loud? How often do we recite the church covenant in our church? Once a month. When? The Lord's Supper, first Sunday of the month. We do that every single month, 12 times a year. And then we do it at our members' meeting, six times a year. We do that repeatedly. Don't make that an empty ritual. Think about what we're saying. Pray while you're reading it. Renew your commitment to one another as a church family. Children, listen up, children. Children, arrogance and pride, these are arrogant people here. Notice their words, 
Notice their delights. Notice their influence. Arrogance and pride is your worst enemy. Children, your worst enemy is not your parents. And it's not your siblings. It's not that bully at school who bugs you all the time. It's not your teachers. Your worst enemy is your pride and arrogance. Examine yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord. Repent and trust in Christ. Fight pride in your life every day, day by day. And also, children, be careful who you follow. Follow those who are humble and ambitious. Don't follow those who are proud and ambitious, those who are self-centered and ambitious. Follow those who are God-centered and ambitious. PJ, why are you saying ambitious? Just tell them to follow the humble. Well, I'm saying ambitious because some people have a false humility and they're not ambitious for God's glory. You need to follow those who are humble and ambitious for God's glory. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Praise God for that. If you're not a Christian, God can forgive, and forgive you of your sins as well. God can save you. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners and rise from the dead because we're all proud and arrogant, aren't we? We're all self-centered. We've all sinned. But God, in his mercy, because we deserve help for our sin, God sent Jesus Christ to die for us and rise for us so that everyone who would repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ can be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life even now, today. If you call on the Lord to save you, if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he will save you. So I plead with you on the authority of God's word himself, on God's words, trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins in repentance. Turn from your righteousness and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and have salvation. God gives it to you and offers it to you this morning. Okay, so we need to beware of the arrogant, but secondly and lastly, we need to beware of the cursed, verses 15 to 22. We need to beware of the cursed. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 to 22, notice three traits of the cursed. Number one, realize their lostness. Realize that their lostness. Look at verse 15 and 16. Children under a curse, they have gone astray by abandoning the straight path they have followed. They, have, they abandoned the straight path, so they've gone astray in their lostness, and they have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Basur, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Notice that they've gone astray. They have abandoned the straight path. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. He's the path. Follow Jesus. Look at Jesus. Trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. These people in the church have strayed from following Jesus. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. They have rejected God's light in God's word. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. As you trust in God, as you trust in Christ, as you trust in his word, God straightens your path. And these false teachers, these cursed people have strayed from the path. They've lost their way. They're like Balaam. Now, these are not non-Christians outside the church who just straight up reject Jesus. These people are like Balaam. Who is Balaam? Balaam was a prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of the true God who was not an Israelite. Wow, imagine that. Not being an Israelite, but being a prophet of Yahweh in the Old Covenant before they even get into the Promised Land. What an amazing privilege to be a prophet of the true God. Balaam was that. And then Balaam got an offer from Moab. Hey, we'll give you a lot of money and we'll give you all kinds of anything you want from us. Just curse the people of God. Curse the people of Yahweh. You're a prophet of Yahweh. Whatever you do comes to pass. We, we, we need you to pronounce a curse on these people. This is in Numbers 22, 23, 24, somewhere in the 20s. Okay? Curse these people. So Balaam wants the money. But he knows he wants to be faithful to Yahweh too. See, this is the false teachers in the church. It's not that they don't want God. They want God and money. They want God and power. They want God and forbidden pleasures. They want God and the respect of others. They want God and their career. They want God and their family. They want God and health. They want God and. They're not settled on God and God alone. Balaam wanted God and money, but he knew he couldn't curse God's people. God wouldn't let him say it, but he wanted to go. And he, you, you, you do this sometimes. I do this. 
we ask God for something and we know God doesn't want us to have it, but we ask him anyways. And we pray earnestly for it, don't we? God, please give it to us. I promise I'll keep you number one. Just, just give it to me. I'll seek first your kingdom. Just give me this first or second and then I'll seek your kingdom first. And you plead with God in that way. And Balaam was pleading with God to go and God said no. And then Balaam pled so much, God said, fine, go. And he's like, all right, praise. thank you, God, thank you. So he, he goes. And as he goes, God wants to cut his head off and kill him because inside his heart is greed. And so God sends an angel with a sword who's about to cut Balaam's head off. Balaam's riding on his donkey and the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. And the donkey starts creeping towards the side of the wall and scrapes Balaam's leg on the wall. Balaam starts beating his donkey. Stupid donkey. Come on, keep going. I need a minister for Yahweh. So, so the, the donkey keeps going and the angel goes again and then he scrapes his leg on, maybe on the other side and starts beating the donkey again. And then he, he gets to a part where, the, where it's a slim place and the angel is standing right there. The donkey has nowhere to go. So the donkey literally just sits down. And Balaam gets up and starts railing on the donkey. Stupid donkey, what are you doing? And then the donkey says, why are you hitting me? <laughs> he's like, because you won't go. I'm telling you to go. He starts arguing with the donkey. He's not amazed the donkey's talking. He just keeps arguing with the donkey. Why don't you go? We need to go. And so um, God opens Balaam's eyes, and there's an angel with a sword drawn. And the angel says, if the donkey wouldn't have stopped, I would have cut your head off. I would have killed you right here. You better thank that donkey for stopping. And Balaam's, I'm so sorry. Okay, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. Do you want me to go back home? I'm so sorry. I'll go back home if you want me to go home. God says, no, go ahead, but just do what I say. Well, Balaam goes, but his heart doesn't repent. He takes it as confirmation that he can have God and greed. So he doesn't curse, but then he gives a separate way. He, sa- he, tells, he tells the Moabites, hey, I can't curse them for you. But you know what? If you get some of their men to sleep with your women, they'll start worshiping your gods, and then God will get mad at them. So Balaam finds a side way of getting the money still without disobeying God with prophesying against the people. Balaam is the classic case of compromise. God and. And there are people in this church and in churches all over the country, all over the world, who are God and Christians. And when you're God and, and not God alone, you might be a false teacher. You might be an apostate because your idolatry and your unwillingness to compromise your idol for God keeps you from God. You can't serve two masters. So realize their lostness. They're lost just like Balaam. They've lost their way. Christ is no longer Lord. What's the, great, what's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with 75% of your heart and 85% of your soul and 95% of your mind and 99% of your strength, Right? That's God's command? No. It's all your heart. Nothing left for money. Nothing left for family. Nothing left for church. Nothing left for ministry. Nothing left for neighbors. Nothing left for country. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or you compromise. So they they lose their path. Okay, realize your lostness. They realize, realize their lostness, but look at verse 17. Not only are they following Balaam, look at verse 17. These people are springs without water, misdriven by a storm. Realize their emptiness. Springs without water. If you're really thirsty, the thirstiest I've ever been typically in my life is whenever I was playing basketball, playing high school basketball, and it's when our coach would make us run forever, back and forth, lines, 17s, um, suicide lines, which up and down, free throw line back, half court back, free throw line back, full court back, over and over and over again. Those are the times where water was like the most precious thing in the world. Nothing but water, like nothing else would do. At the end of those runs, the only thing I want, the only thing the team wants is water. So imagine going to the water fountain and there's no water. Or you buy a water bottle from the, from the uh, vending machine and you get it and it's actually fake water. It's just plastic in the water. It looks like water. I mean, you, you, you open it up, you, you start pouring and nothing comes out. I mean, the frustration of that to have a spring without water, to be so thirsty, and the only thing you want is water, and you think you have water, and you have the water bottle in your hand, and you pour it, and nothing comes out. That's false teachers. That's false learners. That's members of some churches. They look like they're springs of water to help you grow in your Christian life, but they got nothing. 
They're springs without water. They're mists driven by a storm. Now, mists are, you know, so you see a cloud coming, and for them, we have, you know, um, irrigation systems now, but back in the day, how did you water your plants? Rain. If it didn't rain, guess what? Your crops die. So when you see clouds of rain, you rejoice, and you thank God for clouds of rain. And so there'd be clouds of rain, and they're so excited because here comes the rain to water our crops, and it turns out to just be mist. A few drops here and there, and that's it. That's what these people are. They look like they're bountiful. They look like they're life-giving. They look like they're refreshing for your soul. They look like they're going to give you Christian strength, but they are mists driven by the wind. They are springs without water. So realize not only their lostness, realize their emptiness. They are empty. And then thirdly, realize their darkness. Verse 17. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. What does that mean, the gloom of darkness has been reserved for them? That's referring to their what? Their final judgment. The gloom of darkness. The lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. Darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in darkness. God's judgment is a judgment of darkness. It's a withdrawal of his blessed presence, a withdrawal of his light, and it's a darkness. You know, when God judged the Egyptians with darkness of the 10 plagues, one of the 10 plagues, I think it was the ninth plague, it was darkness, and it says in Exodus that it was a darkness, it was so dark for so many days that you started to feel the darkness in your own soul. It had a visceral, physical effect. You could feel the darkness and the judgment of God. And the gloom of darkness is reserved for these false teachers and these false learners. Why? Why are they cursed in their emptiness, in their lostness, in their darkness? Why are they cursed? Because he calls them cursed children in verse 14. Why are they cursed? Um, We have two reasons. Oh, wait, let me see. Yeah, two reasons why they're cursed in verses 18 through 21. Look at, here's why they're cursed. Reason number one, why are they cursed? Because they seduce, verses 18 and 19. Why are these false teachers cursed? They, but for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. So what are they doing? They're seducing with boastful, empty words. They make empty promises. They give big hopes. This is the key to your Christian life. This is the key to church growth. This is the key for your life. This will really help you spiritually. This will help you prosper. They have big promises, but their words are empty. They boast that they have the key to your Christian life that this will really get you going, and this will really get our church going. And they're boastful, empty words. Big big promises, no delivery. And not only do they seduce people with these empty words in verse 18, they seduce these people with fleshly desires and debauchery. So they, they, they seduce people and they trick people by offering them pleasures. Is sin pleasurable, yes or no? Yes. But you know what it's called in Hebrews 11? Fleeting pleasures. Moses gave up the fleeting pleasures of sin that he might have the eternal reward, it says in Hebrews 11. Sin is only powerful because it's pleasing. Bitterness feels good for a moment. Sexual immorality feels good for a moment. Lying and getting away and tricking somebody and leading them astray and off of your tail feels good for a moment. Having a lot of money and feeling rich and wealthy feels good for a moment. And these people seduce them with these fleshly, debaucherous desires. Reckless living, immorality, self-centeredness, it feels good and they play on that pleasure. Christians, we don't do any good to say it doesn't feel good. We just give up the smaller pleasure for the bigger pleasure, don't we? We give the smaller treasure for the bigger treasure, Jesus Christ. But here, they, 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 um, we need to see through these fleshly, fleeting desires. With the death of celebrities and those who seem to have the world at their fingertips, one of the verses that come to my mind is the verse from Luke where it talks about um, the man who's, who just basically hit the jackpot and won the lottery, so to speak, with his crops. His crops started multiplying a thousandfold. He's just super rich. And what does he say? I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to save this for myself. This is going to be awesome. My next 30 years are going to be awesome. And then a voice comes from heaven. You fool. Today, your soul is demanded from you. Then what's going to happen to all your riches? 
Jesus concludes that story by saying, so it is with a man who is not rich toward God. Foolishness. But it feels good. You get the world for a moment, gain the whole world. They, they seduce with their fleshly desires and debauchery. And who do they seduce here again? Earlier it was they seduce the unstable. Here it's those who have barely what? Escape from those who live in error. These are the Christians who are barely making it. The baby Christians, the immature Christians, the vulnerable Christians. Every church, if you're gonna be a healthy church, you need to have vulnerable Christians. You have to, because that means you're growing, right? If you're only an elitist church with only elite Christians, you're not, a, you're not an elite church, you're an unhealthy church. You need to have baby Christians in a church. The thing though for healthy churches, you need to keep them in their baby period as short as possible. They need to grow because they, if they're barely escaping error of the world, they are, they are vulnerable to the false teachers, to those who lead with fleeting fleshly desires. And what are they doing in verse 19? Look at verse 19. What do they promise? They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people who are enslaved, people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Here's why some people don't like Christianity. This might be you. You might say, you know, PJ, here's why I don't like Christianity. I don't want to be a Christian because Christians, Christianity is slavery. When I, if you're going to read this old book and you're going to say, I got to obey what this old book says, and I, I got to obey some guy who supposedly rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, man, I, that's like a straitjacket. Who wants to live their lives with a straitjacket, with never being able to fully extend their arms? I want to be free. I don't want to be committed to this book and to this Jesus, I want to be free from these commitments. If that's you, I certainly want to be free as well. So I, I want to sympathize with you. If that's where you're at, you don't want slavery, great. You want to be free, great. I, I want to be free as well. But here's the thing. You need, to, you need to understand that freedom to one thing or freedom from one thing is slavery to something else. In other words, everyone who's free is a slave and everyone who's a slave is free. It just depends what you're free from and what you're free to. Does that make sense? So if you're, if you're free from the Bible, you can be free from the Bible, but you're a slave to whatever's outside the Bible. Money, if that's your God, or family, or work, or health. But you're saying, PJ, I don't want to be committed to any of these things. I want to be from all, free from all commitments. Then what are you committed to? Non-commitment. You are committed to non-commitment and you are a slave to not committing. Therefore, when someone asks you to commit to something in your friendship, you can't commit to them because you're a slave to not committing. You see that? You can't not be a slave to something. You will be enslaved to something, and you will be, you'll be committed to something and not committed to something else. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that our master that we are enslaved to dies for our sin and rises from the dead. And he gives us true freedom to God, and, and, and he gives us true freedom to God and freedom from sin and self-centeredness. That, might, that is slavery in one sense, but to me and to the Bible, that's true freedom. So much so that the Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Not free from God, not free from the Bible, but free from sin and Satan and death. And that we invite you to the greatest freedom of all. So if you're not a Christian, you're invited to freedom in Christ Jesus. So notice that because they're, they're, they're enslaved to sin, verses 20 and 21, so why are they cursed? Because they seduce others. And the second reason why they're cursed is because they increase in judgment. Look at verses 20 and 21. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because they're professing Christians, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse than, for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It's better to not know Jesus than to know Jesus, say you know Jesus, join a church, and then fall away from Jesus. Your judgment is worse because you are accountable for what you have known. Every time you come to church on Sunday and you hear a biblical prayer, and you hear the Bible being read, and you hear an a faithfully expository sermon where God's words and God's, um, and God's goal of the text controls the words and goal of the sermon, you are accountable for what you hear. You have to answer to God for it. And God calls you to not be a hearer only, but also a what? A doer. And if not, you deceive yourself, and your judgment increases. Going to church is a dangerous thing. When you leave here today, you are not the same, you, you have increased in your accountability. 
Every time you open your Bible to read it, you are increasing your accountability. You're also increasing your opportunity to grow and to rejoice in God and to break free from sin and to increase in your reward, right? But you're also increasing in your accountability. Don't make it a habit to come to church and read your Bible and not do anything because you will increase in your judgment. That's what false teachers do. They have knowledge, they grow in their knowledge, but then they grow in rejecting Jesus. They're driven by their desires. They're driven by their deception. They're driven by those who influence them. And because of that, they are damned. Look at verse 22, last verse. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed, is it sow or sow? Sow? A sow is a female pig, so I'm just gonna say a female pig. A washed female pig returns to wallowing in the mud. So what is this? They reveal their nature. The cursed children reveal their nature. Can Christians fall away from God, yes or no? Ooh, that's divided. Let's take, let's see, let's see some hands here. Can Christians fall away, yes or no? Raise your hand if yes. Yes, Christians can fall away. Raise your hand, no, Christians cannot fall away. Okay, well, it depends on what you mean by Christian. Can professing Christians fall away, yes or no? Yes. yes. Can a church member at BBC who's a public Christian and we recognize them as a public Christian, can they fall away from Jesus, yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay, so in that sense, yes, professing Christians, public Christians can fall away. But can a true Christian follow, or let me say it this way, can a true Christian before God lose his salvation? No. no, they cannot, okay? Now, you can think you're saved. You can think you've been born again and not been born again, right? But a true Christian cannot lose his salvation. And that's what this passage is saying. A pig returns to its what? Well, the mud, sorry. a dog returns to its vomit. And a pig, you can clean the pig up, but by its very nature, it will return to what? The mud. So you can say you're a Christian, you can get baptized, you can join a church, you can preach sermons behind a pulpit, you can pretend to believe the Bible, but guess what? At the end of the day, a dog will return to its vomit, and a pig will return to the mud, and a false, fake Christian will return to its sin. You can dress them up like a Christian, they can be a member of a church, they can talk Jesus, they can talk gospel, but deep down in their nature, they don't love Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. They want to use Jesus for their idolatry. And that's what a false Christian is. That's what a false teacher is. That's what an apostate is. Someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but they're faking it. And they can't hide it long term. They might be able to trick Bethany Baptist Church and the three pastors of Bethany Baptist Church and the 96 members of Bethany Baptist Church, but they will not trick God in the end. Your nature will reveal who you are. So, Christians, let's maintain a loving stance toward people who fall away. Let's not judge them in a way as if you're better than them. You're not. Continue to reach out to them with a heart of restoration and hope, but knowing that God will damn the damned and save the saved. But that doesn't mean we, we need to know that. God doesn't make us the final judge. We love everybody, and we call people to faith and repentance. Church member, Christian, expect and disciple those who, who are false learners and who are falling away. Expect that this is a necessary and inevitable part of your Christian life. If you're a Christian, part of your Christian life means that you will disciple those who fall away. Expect that. Church family, expect that you will disciple members of this church who will fall away. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's not a question of whether, it's a question of who. Don't be judgmental, don't start saying, oh, Pastor PJ, I think it's that guy over there, you know? I don't need your guesses. They're not gonna be helpful for you or for anybody here. Keep discipling each other and loving each other and gospelizing each other. If God will make it clear, our church will act. But here's the thing. If you don't expect it, then you don't apply this passage. Peter wants you to expect false Christians. He wants you to expect falling away Christians in Bethany Baptist Church. Our church is weaker if we don't expect it. Our church is also weaker if we're just judgmental and we're, we're assuming things of people. But if you don't expect it, you're not applying this passage. You need to not be surprised. Every church will practice excommunication if they're doing their job. Every people, every, you know, um, so if you're not a Christian, join a church where you can exercise responsibility over Christians. If you're, I mean, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a church member. If you're a Christian who's not a member of a church, you need to join a church. You can't obey these passages. You can't obey Jesus completely. 
You're unfaithful and you have to disobey Jesus if you're not a member of a church. Attending here every Sunday is not being, a, is not being part of a church. It's committing to a church family to be responsible for each other so that we can stamp out false teaching in our hearts to grow as a church family. We're glad you're here as a guest. Stay here and visit us with us as long as you want, but we want to urge you to obey Jesus by joining a church. Praise God that he sees through our lies. The main goal, again, is beware of false teachers and learners so that you confirm your calling and election. So beware of arrogance in words, in delights, and in influence. Beware of the cursed who are marked by lostness, emptiness, and darkness. They are arrogant and they are cursed. Unlike Jesus, Jesus was humble. Jesus delighted in God. Jesus was never seduced, and he never seduced people towards sin, but he captivated and inspired people towards righteousness, didn't he? Jesus never seduced people and manipulated. He freed them, and he served them. And yet, Jesus willingly placed himself under a curse. Here, Paul, Peter is saying, these are children under a curse. And what does Jesus do? We sang about it. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a what? On a tree. And Jesus willingly places himself as a child of the curse. The son of God hangs on the cross as a child of the curse. And he, he's treated as lost. He's treated as empty. He's treated actually under the gloom of what? Darkness. He hangs in darkness. Darkness reserved for the apostate. Darkness reserved for the fake Christians. Jesus hung in darkness and took the judgment of God so that we might live, love, and learn in his blessed and blood-bought light. We live in the light because Jesus hung in the gloom of darkness. The Lord Jesus is the light of the world. He is the true teacher. He is the truth. He is our guide. His life pattern is our joy. That is our focus. Jesus stands in contrast, in stark contrast, to a world and to the false teachers and learners in churches today. And because Christ died for you, because he died for Bethany Baptist Church, hasn't Jesus blessed you and us with a church where Christians are encouraged? Aren't Christians encouraged in this church family? You guys encourage each other. You guys love each other. You guys teach each other. You rebuke each other. You correct each other. I see you training each other in righteousness. You hold each other accountable. You practice church membership meaningfully. You excommunicate when God calls us to. And you do that so that we endure and grow and make our calling and election sure. Brothers and sisters, you are a, you are a faithful church. And I commend you for that. Be encouraged. You hold fast to the biblical gospel. You hold fast to theological truth. You fight pride and deception in your life and in this church. You hold our members accountable. Bethany Baptist Church, you are doing well. And you know what? We, I, I listed all these people who have fallen away. Because you have done well, many in our church in my last five years here have endured faithfully and finished well their Christian life because of you. As best we can tell, by your faithful ministry and sharing life, just to name a few, Gene, Al, Carol, Ronnie, we help each other get to the finish line. You have done this. God uses you to help the members get there. And we must help the 95 other members. You're the 96th. You must help the other 95 members get there faithfully. So brothers and sisters, continue on by raising your awareness of the ever-present danger of false teachers and false learners. If you continue to be aware, you'll, you'll, you'll be more vulnerable to, you, you'll, if you don't do that, you'll be vulnerable to deception. You won't help members, and you might even fall away. But if you are regularly aware of false teachers in this church and in this world, you'll grow in your humility and care, you'll grow to confirm your calling and election, and you'll help others, you'll help me, you'll help the other members of this church make their calling and election sure. False teaching attacks every church. Let's keep watch over ourselves and one another, one another by God's grace. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment to pray and then I'll close this. Father, we pause to thank you for giving us 95 other church members who love us.
and who are willing to take responsibility for our discipleship. We thank you that even though false teachers and false Christians rise up in every church, that you give us a word like Second Peter to warn us and to raise the awareness in our church. Father, we pray what I prayed already. We pray that you guard us from a spirit of judgmentalism in this church, a spirit of prematurely judging each other as fake or true Christians. Help us to very lovingly, intentionally, and naively keep blessing and encouraging each other. At the same time, Lord, help us to be aware and not surprised by false teaching in churches. Lord, we pray for each of the 96 members of our church that we would all finish well. And for those who are joining our church, that you'd help them to help us to finish well as we help them. For Christians from other churches, Lord, help them, Lord, to help their churches. For those Christians who say they're Christian and are not part of a church, help them to join a church. For those who aren't Christian, give them life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.